Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Element. That's L-M-N-T. On this episode of Element, <laughs> I want to talk about one of the things we're seeing in our greater strength conditioning community, which is people are spending a lot of time in the sauna. Yeah, it's really the thing to do. And we are no exception because we are in our sauna three to five times a week. And sometimes we're sitting in there for over an hour. I oftentimes will train and not do a lot of sweating. Maybe I glisten a little bit. I don't know if you've ever seen me glisten. I have. You do glisten. But in the sauna, it's not glisten. It is full on sweat. Yeah, we are fully sweating in there. You have to replace electrolytes. We are seeing in the same community people eating way more fruits and vegetables and they're not replacing any of this. They're not salting anything. Yeah, so my strategy is I fill up a giant Yeti water bottle and fill it up with Element, and I drink it while I'm in the sauna. My goal is to drink an entire bottle of Element while I'm in the sauna. Yeah, you know, I, I sometimes I think, obviously, thirst drives everything, right? If, if you're thirsty, drive to drink. Drink when you're thirsty. But we are seeing that if you just chug a bunch of water and you're not eating or you don't have enough Salt in that water, you're not going to absorb the water. You're going to, you're just going to bounce off your kidneys. Well, plus when I'm sauna, I just for the want, internet. And then Kelly said, water bounces off my kidneys. And I just want going back to the sauna. I just want to get ahead of it, which is why I try to drink a lot of water while I'm in the sauna, not after the fact. Dude, this is the game if you're sweating hard in training. If you want to get some element yourself, right now you can order a sample pack for just the price of shipping, which is five dollars in the U.S. Their sample packs include eight packets, so you can try each of their eight flavors. And they're all worth it. Go to thereadystate.com slash free element. That's free L-M-N-T to check it out. This episode of The Ready State is brought to you by Virtual Mobility Coach. This may sound crazy, but last year, I kind of tried to clone my husband. Awesome. Only kind of though. You see, Kelly gets dozens of requests every day for help. And even though he wants to give everyone his personal attention, there just aren't enough hours in the day. So I typed in how to clone a human being into Google. Just kidding, but in seriousness, what we did do was create our virtual mobility coach platform. It's like having a virtual Kelly Starrett in your pocket. Which obviously everyone needs. And that's right. I personally create over 600 mobility protocols for the virtual mobility coach. So the platform can help you with almost any movement problem imaginable. For example, let's say you're in pain. The VMC will show you a diagram of the human body. All you have to do is click where it hurts. And from there, we'll serve you up a customized pain prescription we call Mobility RX. The virtual mobility coach can also help you warm up and cool down when you exercise. Every day, we provide fresh pre- and post-workout mobilizations for more than four dozen sports and movements. Plus, on your days off, we even have a video called Daily Maintenance to help you relax and recover so you can get back 100% in record time. Best of all, right now you can try Virtual Mobility Coach free for two whole weeks, so you can check out everything it has to offer without paying a penny. Claim your free 14-day trial of Virtual Mobility Coach now. Go to thereadystate.com slash free trial. That's thereadystate.com slash free trial. And we'll see you inside. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, we are stoked to bring you Bianca Valenti. Stoked. Now, Bianca, it's interesting because she is a family friend. We see her around Marin. We've known her for years. But this is one of the first times you and I have heard her story. Yeah, her full story. The full story. And I know Bianca is an an extraordinary woman, good friend, athlete, but the whole backstory is really mind blowing. It's pretty bonkers. You may know her because she's one of the best big wave surfers in the world. She's recognized for many victories, including winning equal pay and access for all athletes in professional surfing, which is a gigantic 
accomplishment. That's not on her license plate. Her notable recent surf victories include a podium finish at the 2021 XXL Big Wave Awards Biggest Paddle of the Year, two-time winner of Puerto Escondido Cup in 2018 and 2019, and Bianca is one of the first women in history to win a big wave competition in 2014 at Nell Scott Reef in Oregon. I'll say not one of the first women, the, the first woman. The first. It's, the first. It's bonkers. What's interesting about her story is that this is a woman who's completely rooted in surfing, right? You would not know that she has a whole bunch of star projects coming her way like... Well, you can keep an eye out for a Hollywood film about her amazing surfing and activism featuring Charlize Theron telling the story of her fight for gender equality and equal pay. It was based on a New York Times Magazine cover story from 2019. She's also featured in the documentary called She Change, which tells that story as well in documentary form. You know, one of the things that you and I love is this notion of always trying to improve the ball, leave a place better than you found it, be a guide versus a non-guide. And one of our current projects, Better Wave, it's an investment vessel for athletes to be able to create 401k, health insurance, investing, so they can be professional athletes and not critically poor. Enjoy this awesome conversation with Bianca. Bianca, welcome to the Ready State podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Just for full transparency, Bianca is like a family friend to us. Yes. Aw, thanks. It's fun to have a mutant superwoman freak who I watch on Instagram and I'm like, that's crazy. Why is she doing that? That's crazy. And then I'm like, oh, it's my friend Bianca. <laughs> She's crazy. <laughs> so everyone understands, what are you doing in the world? How, explain what your life's work is currently. Actually, I don't know if I've ever shared with you how I found out about you two. I was working with a trainer, Oscar, and he was training the America's Cup Oracle team. And he gave me your book, The Supple Leopard. And he said, this is your Bible. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, "This this is a weird God, you know, Oscar. Yeah. Since then, I've had your book and I've always kept it like out in my mobility area and read through it and reread through it and then watched the videos. And so, yeah, I just really appreciate all of the work that both of you do. And um, yeah, it's awesome. So thank you. You're welcome. All right. So my question is, you spend a lot of time surfing very big waves. How did that come to be? Started standing up on a boogie board when I was seven. And my mom is really cool. And she's also pretty savage herself. And she's like, hey, do you want to get a hardboard? And I was like, yeah. And uh, I had a $75 budget. And we went around to like the three surf shops that existed and nothing Nothing was in my budget except for one board covered in skull and crossbones. <laughs> and, you know, when I was seven, I was like, this is scary. And so the guys at the shop said, come, come back tomorrow. Went back. It was all white. And then we went down to Doheny Beach in Dana Point. That's like the best baby kind of beach to learn at. Most beginner-friendly beach to learn at ever. And, uh, yeah, my mom put her chair at the edge of the water and said, don't make me come and rescue you. And that was kind of the beginning. (laughs) That, I haven't heard that. And tell us how you went from the beginner beach to, you know, being one of the most badass big wave surfers on earth. I realize that's a long time span, but, you know, tell us a little bit about the trajectory from, you know, that point in your life to what you're doing now. Especially since it's not always just a straight shot from loving to surf as a kid 
and then surfing the biggest waves in the world. There are a lot of people who surf, but who'll never surf Mavericks or never surf Puerto or never see themselves in some of these waves. How does that come to be? Yeah. So I think it's the same as when I first started surfing. It was like that very first week that I had a board, I also got a poster of Kelly Slater and it was like 1992 world champion. It was his first world championship. And for anyone who's listening, Kelly Slater is the greatest surfer of all time. And I, yeah, I was, would just look at that image of him standing in this huge barrel at pipeline. And I thought I want to be the best surfer in the world. Like that's what I want to do. And then, you know, I'd paddle out and the waves would be one foot, two foot, and I'd be too scared to catch a wave. And then I'd be like, well, I see my friend catching waves. Maybe I'll just try and see what happens. And then sometimes I'd wipe out and sometimes I'd make it. And it was those moments that, you know, when you make it, when you put yourself over the edge and you, you go a little bit outside of your comfort zone that, that really keep me, keep me motivated and keep me going for more. So you're so humble, but I mean, if you could look in from the outside, would it have been obvious to onlookers that you had some talent for this when you were young? Because my guess is yes, but... Yeah. First of all, I have, I was born with a lot of fire in me and a lot of fight and just deep, deep feeler, strong emotions. And so my mom, all the credit to her for just seeing what a healthy outlet the ocean specifically was for me. And I mean, I played every other sport too, just like other kids, but the ocean is just so powerful. And no matter how much fight you've gotten you, you can't fight the ocean because you'll never win. So you got to surrender. So it just has this really, really beautiful, long lasting impact throughout the day on your well-being and on like taming that fire. <laughs> we'll get into the nitty gritty about sort of some of your advocacy for equality in sports, which is a really exceptional thing you do. But right now, I feel like we are at the strongest moment in our history for having incredible women, extreme athletes. And extreme is a dumb word, I know. But I'm like, I'm talking about like our mountain bikers, our our kayakers, and our big wave surfers. The women surfing right now is an all-time high. And I can think of in my sort of, you know, paltry understanding of this. But I'm taken by you saying there was a picture of Kelly Slater and you're like, I want to do that. And it was a boy they emulated. And there, were there any women at the time where you're like, that's the woman I want to surf like? No. So Kelly, at that time as a seven-year-old, I didn't have any concept of gender. And back then there weren't girls or women's divisions in a lot of the competitions. So I was competing against the boys all the time, but, and I would win a lot. And then I started competing with the open women as well. And so I was just like, wow, I can, I can compete and, and make it to the podium with the adult women and I can beat all the boys. And so that idea of like gender didn't really hit me until my teens when I, I had already been so obsessed with surfing for so long. I had subscriptions to all the magazines. I watched The Endless Summer 2 like at least a thousand times. I was so say we all just <laughs> consuming as much surf media as I could. And I was never seeing any women except for occasionally I'd see Kayala, see Rochelle. And then I knew based on my own experience that I was like, I know there's other women out there who are ripping and like, where are they? Why aren't they showing up in the magazine? How, how come the only girl who I see in the magazine is the reef model and the G-string 
with the guys surfing the perfect wave. And that's kind of when I started to get pissed off and decided, you know, I wanted to take a stance and use my voice and try to change that for, for all the up and coming girls. Just so we sort of understand the trajectory, by this point, are you a professional surfer and like an adult or are you a teenager? Sort of where are you in your trajectory and what did you do to sort of take a stand and use your voice? Like, tell us a little more about that. I was a sponsored athlete and I think the first time I collected a pro, like a check from a pro event was when I was 15 and I was riding longboard then. And even then I started to get pissed because like my sponsors, I, I would be at the top of the podium all the time, but the model image girls or the boys who were on my same team, same athletes riding for the same brand, they would get better deals than me. And so I was just like, what the heck? I'm the best one because I'm, I'm winning all the time, you know? And then I started to realize like how the system was set up and I just burnt out and stopped talking to all my sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to college at UCSB and I, you know, I, I ha always had that dream of being the best surfer and I didn't stop putting in the work to, to keep improving my skills as an athlete, but I did take a step back from competition and I also started surfing shortboards and big waves during that time. We hear that as a, not as a generalization, but there are a, there's a well-documented path of people learning to surf, surfing competitively in that style and format of surfing, and then realizing it really wasn't necessarily consistent with the, the kinds of experiences they wanted to have in the ocean, the kind of relationship they had in the ocean. And they end up transitioning to adventure. They end up transitioning. I mean, I just think about the Malloys making a, you know, some John John, some of these other kids who have done an incredible job, you know, transitioning out of hyper-competitive surf. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but there's not or hasn't always been a direct sort of correlation worth, oh, I'm going to leave this place where I can make a living as a surfer and transition to a place where I'm going to surf big waves that no one knows about and can't even relate to and make a living that way. Did you even think that there would be a, a way of, of paying your bills surfing big waves when you kind of started thinking that direction? No, I never thought that. Um, I mean, everybody, everybody in my family and friends, everybody would always just tell me like, you know, nah, you're never going to be a pro surfer. Even if you are, you don't make money. So like, that's not going to be a pathway that, that you can really ride. And so that's why it's important for you to go to college and get a job. And like, I really, I kind of gave up on the dream until I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> which was actually when I moved up here, up to Marin, and I started surfing with Nate McCarthy, who owns Proof Lab. And he, he was so encouraging and helped me really dial in my equipment. And he kept saying like, hey, you're one of the best in the world. You, you should go on the WQS, the qualifying series, and make the world tour. And so I started to believe it again. And then I entered an event, and I hadn't entered an event in, in I don't know, seven years. And it was at the Women's Pipeline Pro in 2012. And I ended up taking down all the biggest names in surfing in that event. And I won the event. Guess you had a little fight left in you. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was all those days surfing Cronkite. Wait, wait. Who is this cold water NorCal girl? Yes. That is crazy. Because if you don't know, 
surfing in Northern California is very different than some of the surfing on the rest of the planet. Am I am I right in that? Oh my gosh, yeah. It's a it's rugged, rough, heavy water up here. So that's what's cool about it is like if you can become a good surfer up here, you can go anywhere in the world and surf. Just for context, your house is near a pretty famous beach. What's that beach? Ocean Beach, San Francisco. Yeah. And I, I like to think of Ocean Beach as like a cross between a big wave and a class five river. Of course, you two would know more about that than me, but it does feel like that. Except it's scarier you know, and darker. As a non-surfer, what you always notice about Ocean Beach versus, you know, I went to high school in Southern California and, you know, every wave has a billion people on it. You know, what what you know as a spectator is that there's ever, barely every, any surfers at Ocean Beach, which tells you a lot about what it's like out there. It's really a select group of people who actually can and do surf there. Yeah, it's starting to change a little bit. But yeah, I'm curious what you two think about my comparison of it being a cross between a wave and a river because... 100%. It is because the waves are coming in sideways and it feels heavy and... Yeah. Because the bay is 400 square miles. So how many bazillion gallons of water is that moving in and out with every tide change? We, in full transparency, I'm, I'm going to admit something that I'm, I'm not proud of. When I first moved to the city for Juliet, Sachet La Femme, Sachet La Femme. Girl, we were hardcore kayakers and we were convinced we could take our kayaks into the lineup. We had little like eight foot thrusters set up. Little whitewater kayaks. Whitewater kayaks, but also surfing specific kayaks. And we were like, look, we can just go immediately paddle out and get trashed and surf big waves. And we were cool in the lineup. I mean, there were every once in a while someone was uncool. It took us a decade. We surfed Ocean Beach so much. But it took us a decade before we were like, I think in our Yeah, kayak, whitewater kayaks. We think this is the wrong craft for the medium. And we all started standing up and surfing because we were just like, the, the cost of getting out through the lineup was tremendous. The amount of water moving around and the absolute trashings we took. Well, that, there would be days that I would go, which I gave up this endeavor pretty early on, where I wouldn't even make it more than like 10 feet off the beach because I just literally couldn't. I just would get trashed and hit the beach and trashed and hit the beach. You know, you just, you can't, you can't duck under the wave in a kayak. You've got to go over the wave. We even put on a surf kayak contest at Ocean Beach for our nonprofit. It was called. There were like 10 competitors. No, no, no. We had a ton. Did we? It was called Crush. And the only, only score was all subjective was biggest wave, biggest pull in. Like not, you're just it was just like super stoked, and it was gigantic that well, day. Let me just the give swell you- interval was massive. It was gigantic. We people were like, "Well, we may die today," and I was like, "Well, it's it's for little kids, so get out there and surf." Here's how for those of you who haven't been there. No, I mean this is still we're trying to do the wrong sport in the in the totally. ocean. But my friend Sue Norman came down for this competition, and she is a national champion whitewater kayaker, world champion whitewater paddler. Like this woman is legit, and she couldn't make it more than five feet off of the the beach. We had, a bunch, we had a bunch of she pro like, whitewater yeah, kayakers Yeah, like these are like come. the legitest Freestyle people kayakers. can't get off the beach at Ocean Beach. And just take the yeah. biggest shots on the head for, uh, I have to find those photos. But anyway, my point is, that's your home break. And I think I want everyone to understand that when you say it is like, we we called it inner city class five. It's like, oh, do you feel like fighting today? Let's go surfing. And we would sit at the at the parking lot and be like, it's not that big. Let's go. And then we get out there and be like, what's wrong with, we're going to, this is terrible. It's always, always big at Ocean Beach. Yeah. And then, so that's actually how I got into big wave surfing was 
coming up to Ocean Beach during uh, the first swell of a winter one year. I was, I think it was 2006. Got to the beach with a friend and we just saw perfect peaks, offshore winds and nobody out because that was what it was back then. Now it's more crowded, but anyhow, we're like, wow, it's perfect out there. And we got lucky when we paddled out because we just locked straight into a rip, get out most of the way. And then this huge, massive mountain of white waters coming at us. But that wasn't that bad. We ducked over under that. It, it was the next wave that was like the size of a two-story house, but it was just squaring off as wide as it was tall. And I, I, to that point in my life, I had never seen a wave like that, like straight in front of my face. And I just looked at my friend Parker and he said, well, see you on the other side. (laughs) (laughs) I actually tried to duck dive it. Uh, The better call would have been to bail my board, but I had a comp light leash on. We were on the total wrong equipment. And I was like spinning and twisting and just like getting thrashed and ragdolled and finally opened up my eyes and I saw black. And then, and I was like, well, which way is up? My feet touched the sand And I pushed off and just with the last left energy I had, it was probably like three strokes to the surface. And I I thought, if there's another wave behind this, I'm literally going to die. But I just didn't even have the capacity to have any emotions about it. It was just a fact. (laughs) (laughs) This is my life now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I came up and there was not another wave. I saw Parker and I was like gasping for air and convulsing and trembling and tingling in my legs and my neck was convulsing, like all these parts of my body just were starting to pump the blood again. And then we went in and I just stared on the beach that day. And I was like, I want to surf those waves. I know I can do it. <laughs> I have the skills to do it. Because if you can surf out there, you could get the best r- ride of your life. And that was when I started putting in the work, learned about the equipment, blah, blah, blah. Well, first of all, so I have to go back. You win this competition after being out of competition for seven years. And do, do you have sort of a light bulb moment? Like, wait a second, I think I can be a pro surfer. And our, our sponsor is starting to line up at your doorstep. And, you know, sort of what happens there? And, and then I have a sub question. What happened was, and so the story I just told about Ocean Beach happened before. That was 2006. So that was when I started doing that training and then I win the Pipeline Pro in 2012, and I was like, yes, I am now, like, I'm going to be able to make my dream come true, and I'm going to go after sponsors and look for support. And honestly, it was the same responses as before, and nothing had changed. And so it was kind of just, like, gut-wrenching a little bit. But, I, you know, it didn't deter me from from my love and my passion and, and my goals to keep getting bigger, better waves. So when did you transition from that to like big, big, big waves like Mavericks? And what was your first big wave? Yeah. So no Mavericks. So I mean, well, Puerto Escondido, I spent the summers in Puerto Escondido after I graduated from UCSB. Um, I was working at a surf and yoga retreat down in Mexico and we'd work two weeks on, two weeks off. And I'd catch the bus down to Pascuales, which is another big wave. I would just get like just hammered, thrown over the falls, broken boards. But bit by bit, I started getting like, I started getting the hang of it. I started learning how to, you know, use the rips to get out and 
what equipment to ride. And, and I didn't mind taking the beatdowns, which was crucial. <laughs> that's actually crucial for a lot of people starting any business. You are going to take the beatdowns. Exactly. That's the best thing about surfing is like you, you do wipe out every day and it's so humiliating. And, and then, then I went down to Puerto Escondido and a friend of mine who lived in Santa Cruz, I met this girl, Savannah Shaughnessy, who had surfed Mavericks already. And I was kind of like comparing myself to her when we'd be surfing at Puerto. And I was like, well, if she's surfing Mavericks, I could surf Mavericks too. And then I called a guy to order a board because you need to have the right board. And he basically like made me promise I wouldn't die in order to let me buy a board from him because he was like, I don't usually make them for women. So that was interesting too. But then in 2012, I paddled out to Mavericks for, for the first time with Savannah and her brother. They were filming for the Jay Moriarty movie that day. And it was before drones. And basically there was a helicopter flying around the lineup with like a 300 pound camera flying in the air. And then you had the world's best big wave surfers in this wave that I had never seen up close and personal before. And I was just like, wow, this is it. This is what life's about. This is magic. This is majestic. And um, I, I thought, I'm not going to catch a wave today because I'm not ready for this. And then a kind of wide one came that was less risky. And I was like, fuck it, and spun around, caught it. And it was the biggest wave of my life to that day. And it, I loved it. Did everybody, you know, just because I know it's a small scene, by that point, does everyone know who you are? And they're like, oh, hey, what up? Are you a and new how many, character? And like, how many women are out in the Yeah, lineup? and are they saying, what the hell, who's this lady here? Or like, what's sort of the vibe? Definitely the vibe was like, who are you? And you're the new person here. But also, I, I find that the guys usually want to chat it up and, and they're like, oh, you're kind of cute. You want to go out on a date? You know? <laughs> um, so it's been a skill to learn to just... Sure, ho hold my beer while I take this wave. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I went out with Savannah and her brother and then I didn't go back for two years because I injured myself the next year out here at Ocean Beach, did an MCL. And that's when I started getting into training, actually, was the first time ever in my life. Like I started going to the gym and, and learning about movement and um, still continue to learn, obviously. <laughs> So that was 2013. And in 2014, we were invited to, to surf for the first time ever in the Big Wave World Tour at Nelscott Reef in Oregon. When you say we, you mean, do you mean you or do you mean women? We women, yeah. And so I had been super excited about that. I got the invite before my injury. And then I got my injury in December. And it was like, it was, I don't know, grade four MCL tear. So I could not extent like I could not bend it or extend it and I just but all I did every day was my PT exercises worked on my breathing and then in March I heard I was at the point in my rehab that like I could do single leg squats but I hadn't gotten on the board yet and I, we got the call that it was like the green light for the event was was um coming it was like going to be in 72 hours and so I called my physical therapist and I was like hey dude you think I should do this? I really want to. And he was like, well, what leg is it? Is it your leash leg? And I was like, no. And he's like, well, I probably shouldn't tell you to do it, but if it was me, I would. <laughs> <laughs> Good physical therapist. Yeah. And then he said, just don't fall. I went surfing at Bellinas like the next day just to feel it out. And I thought, gosh, why haven't I been paddling? 
but I felt good on, on the, on the longboard. You don't have to move your, your movements and your positions are like more stable on bigger boards on short boards. You're moving around a lot more. So those little like tweaky moves are the ones that seem dangerous. And then, um, yeah, so I tested my equipment and then I jumped in a van with some friends and we drove up to Nelscott Reef, Oregon. And I just thought, okay, no pressure. You're just going for fun. If you don't want to catch a wave once you're out there, don't, you know? I love how healthy that is. Like you, most people would think I've already, we actually call it like put in pressure. You get to the put in a river and everyone's there and you feel like you have to go run the right, river. Right, because it's like a Herculean effort to get everyone there and the equipment. And people and get over stuff. their heads sometimes. Like you were like, hey, I'm just having a terrible day. But like we always actually stop and say to each other like, You're like should we do this? Are you okay? Are we up for it? Are you still up for it? Because it, don't, don't fight the, the put in pressure. But you have this attitude. You're like, I'm just going to go see. Yeah, just going to be, just assess it from the water. And and when I got there, when we got there that day, um, it was the it was the first time I was really surrounded by the whole community of big wave surfers. And what I loved about it was was all these people who were really excited about what's possible and exploring and adventuring. And so I was just like, these are my kind of people. Like they were positive and yeah, there was high stoke, high vibes. And so I just kind of started collecting as much information from anybody around, like, hey, what do I need to know about this wave? What are my lineups? Because this wave breaks a mile and a half out, really, really far out. So you, in order to, to stay on the spot and in the zone where you can catch the waves, you have to constantly triangulate and vector. And so this guy had told me there's a reverse mohawk you're going to see on this mountain. And I was like, what is a reverse Mohawk? And he was just like, you'll know when you see it. <laughs> and then I was like, there it is the reverse Mohawk and I'm on the boil. And the, you know, and so I was like, okay, I'm in the position. The reverse Mohawk was like a chunk of forest that was just cut out of the middle. And then like 30 minutes into the heat, I hadn't caught a wave and everybody was catching waves. And I was just like, screw it. I'm going to sit deepest and steepest. And I caught, yeah, like almost a 10 point ride on that wave. And then I needed one more to back it up. And um, of course, you have no way of knowing like what position you're in when you're out there in the water because there's no megaphones or anything. But when the heat ended, my safety driver who drove me in on the jet ski said, I think you won that. And then we got to the beach. I was like, me? No, probably not. And we got to the beach and they're like, the first winner of the Women's Big Wave World Championship our event. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was an awesome moment. Can I just say for emphasis is this is like, what, four or five months after you have the surgery? No, I had no surgery because it was MCL. And so it was four months into it and I wouldn't say it did it took me another four to fully recover and then like another couple more to be like short on my short board so that was amazing tw- that amazing. was 2014 that was the first year you're nominated for the XXL big wave award is that is that when that started to happen yeah that is when that started to happen and that was also an interesting thing about the Oregon event was like there was no money in the women's division. There was a $55,000 purse for the men, but all the women showed up from Hawaii and everything. And, um, at the last minute, a local brew co threw in some money and we just all split it evenly. So that was cool. You women are amazing. So this is a little bit of a departure, but I have to ask, 
I think you were either the the reason for or instrumental in getting women invited to Mavericks. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So actually it segues perfectly because like I have that competitive fire, you know, and like there's nothing, there's no greater feeling than winning. And when you win, you know, what do you want to do? You want to go win again. Right. And so I was like, it was a huge. So by the way, this Oregon contest was the first time that women were ever women or men were ever broadcast live on the Internet. So it was a live streaming event and the responses were just like, fantastic. Everyone was like, wow, my mind just bent and twisted and we didn't know women could surf big waves and everyone did so great. And so the responses were so positive and, and inspiring. And I thought, gosh, I really love winning and I want to win again. And so, I mean, doesn't it make sense to just have a women's division on like at every single stop on the tour? I get from a business perspective, in my mind, it was just like, Duh, you want to have women part of the event because then you have a bigger audience, right? And so the first spot that I figured I'd ask was Mavericks because it's 20 minutes south of my house. And um, yeah, I had no idea (laughs) the fight I was about to get into over trying to just get women included in that event. And it, it was funny too because I called... Jeff Clark and the cartel on the radio. And I, and so they were going on the radio. I knew they were going on the radio and I called them up and I said, Hey, since Oregon went, so, Hey Jeff, it's Bianca, big fan. Thanks for everything you've done to pave the way. And since the Oregon event went so well for women, can we have a women's division at Mavericks? What I heard was a yes. It wasn't actually, you can listen to the recording now. And he was kind of like, well, if you put your time in and blah, blah, get the other women. And then at that point, I then just fired off this email to like every single big wave woman surfer who I know, which was like 14 at the time. And I said, hey, we all need to surf Mavericks this winter. So that way we can be part of the contest. Anybody who wants to come, my house is open and we're starting a fund to help you travel here. And like, let's do this. This is awesome. That is awesome. And then what happened? Yeah. And then I, and then I realized like I had heard the wrong thing. Because <laughs> they didn't really want us in it. <laughs> so, And how did you learn that? Like what's, I have to hear the rest of the story. Like how did you learn that, you know, maybe you hadn't fully understood what th- wait, was said? What year is this? This was this was 2014. It was it was literally. I'm trying to frame for everyone that this is yesterday. Oh yeah, like this is crazy. Women's weren't allowed to even race in the America's Cup before too long. Yeah, right. I mean, like you think in 2014 we're starting to get our heads around, but this is a pocket of just. I mean, this is crazy. This is 24. This is yesterday. <laughs> Yeah. And so, and so what would happen would be, I would get into these conversations, these one-on-one conversations with the organizers and with the elders. And, um, there would just be, it would kind of be like these circular conversations where it's like, well, you're good enough, but like, you're an exception to the rule. And, you know, I've had friends who have died there and we don't want any women to die there. And, or they don't know you haven't put in enough time or there's not enough of you. And it was always the same reasons. And so then we decided to take a different route and to appeal to the Coastal Commission of California and then the state lands of California and just say, hey, like if these events are being held on public lands, they should be for everybody. And how'd that go? 
I mean, it wasn't, I wouldn't call it fun, but it worked. We were able, we were able to win, win inclusion and equal prize money. And that was, those were huge victories. And I was so fixated on the event happening and actually participating in the event. So hang on a second. There's something in there that's worth talking about. The first one is that you were just down to, hey, we just want to surf, right? And like like a lot of oppressed people, you're like, hey, we'll just take a small win. But the idea of really getting equal pay came out of this commission saying, also, this is this is how we really level up. Did you feel like that was going to be a step too far to ask for that? Because we're beginning to just see that across so many sports now. Women's tennis has done it. You know, CrossFit's been on it for a minute with their elite competitions, but it's pretty unusual in the field of of extreme sports, again, whatever that word is, adventure sport competitions to see men and women get the same pay. Yeah, no, I I thought the idea was terrifying at the time. And I think that's when, you know, all the, the different guides that you have, it, some are surfers and some are non-surfers. And it was really clear amongst the non-surfers that like, it just made sense. It was black and white. So the people who, you know, were able to be more objective were like, no, Bianca, you got to do this. And then just like you're saying, like so many oppressed people, I think it was, it was also like, we just came to realize that we didn't have anything to lose. So why not? If the Coastal Commission, was that the organization that was responsible for desegregation of beaches? Is that the same group? Yeah, so the Coastal Commission is responsible for equal access along the entire California coast. And the Coastal Doctrine is kind of like the Bill of Rights that was created back in the 1600s in the U.S. That's so cool. So, well, first of all, sort of what was the reaction in the community? Were you worried about your own reputation or how people would feel about you? Sort of what was the reaction to, to first, the access, and then second, how did how did you actually go about requesting and even starting the conversation about equal pay? Based on all these meetings, I then drafted a two-page document that explained what it looks like to have women competing in in an event in a women's division. And then I so I drafted the first draft and then I I shared it with all the smartest people I know and scholars and academics and everybody added a little bit until we had this really strong two-page paper about why it was important for historical reasons, why it was important for future, and how this would create more opportunity for all athletes, ultimately. First of all, how do you even know who to reach out to? You know, you mentioned state lands. Like, what is like what does state lands have to do with the coast and the water? And tell us a little bit about that. So one of the people who was a big ally was an activist, a local activist, who knew all the permitting really, really well. And she was a great guide in how we should approach all of these different, these different agencies. And what's crazy about Mavericks and like, it is a really complex event because there's 10 interlocking permits with like 10 different agencies because you're in a Marine sanctuary and blah, blah, blah. But I guess what really matters is like the real power came from Paige, Keala, Andrea and I sticking together. And uh, that hadn't been done yet. And it was just crazy. Like what, what, how much power there could be in sticking together and using our voice. And so, you know, right now at this time, you're focused on first getting access to be able to compete in Mavericks and then equal pay sort of added on to that. But what about all the other surfing events? Yeah, I mean, WSL takes over 
would this force their hand? Did, did this force their hand to kind of think differently about the whole surfing structure? Right. So, yeah. So that was what was amazing was that WSL realized we had backed them into a corner at, for Ma- the Mavericks event. And they they decided to do the right thing and to become the first international sports body to implement equal prize money throughout the entire organization, whether it was in juniors, shortboard, longboard, across across the world. So that was that was a really, you know, clap the hands for them on that. That's crazy. Sometimes you're like, hey, I think I can beat Kelly Slater. You know, and that little surf poster you had as a kid, turns out, you know, I'm not sure Kelly ever advocated for as many people and changed the sport. I mean, maybe your dreams are kind of low and pinche, kid. I mean, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, holy moly. Like, maybe, I mean, maybe, you know, one of the things that we're, we've been watching, and everyone who is listening to this probably has seen the 100-foot wave. And one of the cool things is to see is that that wave has been surfed for a decade, overlapping this time where you're battling with some of these these events. But the quality of women's big wave surfing gets more and more bananas. And if you're even paying attention currently, the top women big wave surfers are really good. And we're seeing that in women's kayaking, whitewater kayaking. Jess Fox, you know, the Olympian. We're, just I feel like there's a whole sort of generation in the last decade that has really become, I mean, for me, the most inspiring athletes on the water right now are, are women. Yeah, one cool thing that happened out of our advocacy work was that it set the precedent for any other outdoor sports in, in California. So the next sport that benefited from our work was the women cyclists. Right, because there's the big event, the Tour of California. You know, nobody even knows when it's happening and there's no coverage. And I'm assuming there wasn't equal pay up until the work that you guys did, right? I mean... And Katie Hall is one of our friends who won the Tour of California and has benefited from from this advocacy. It's amazing. Sometimes people back into advocacy sometimes by accident, right? They just see a problem and they just they work to solve it. But you're also still a competitor. How do you balance both those things? I think of some of the baseball players who are breaking, you know, you know, race boundaries. It's a real pressure on the athlete to suddenly be the face of a movement and still compete at a high level. Does that impact you? Did it impact you? And I mean, now that's settled down, you're like just a surfer girl again, in quotation marks. But uh, that's a lot of like a lot of the eye of Sauron on a little, you know, on a surfer. I mean, that's it's a heavy, heavy load. It has been a heavy, heavy load. And I think just now in the, like after three years that I've been able to find my stoke again and, and to, uh, just always to take a step back and look at it, look at the big picture and think about my little girl self who wanted those opportunities and to think about the little girls today who will get those opportunities and the little boys too, who will see the, the girls as equals. It seems like you just sort of have activism at your core and you won't be able to get away from it. And as you know, and we know, because we started off as outdoors people and on in river people, but surfing and all outdoor sports are maybe moving towards more equity from a gender standpoint, but still are really lacking in any kind of other diversity. And I know that you've gotten involved with a couple of organizations to try to expand access to different kinds of people to surfing and other outdoor sports. Can you tell us a little about that? You know, there's still a long way to go. And most of the time when I'm surfing out here out front, I'm surfing with still all white dudes. And I just, you know, I think that that connecting with nature 
and that there's that there's a real true power in going out, t- making a choice to go out and face fear and surrender to the ocean and, and be one with it. And so some of the really cool programs that run locally are Me Water Foundation, City Surf, Brown Girl Surf, and they all have different unique programs where they're helping get people out in the water who wouldn't have normally had access. And uh, those are some of my most meaningful days or when I volunteer and work and just see that stoke on these people, these you know, young, young girls and young boys faces and just to see them having that choice to face fear and the power that it gives them. Whereas in their home life, you know, maybe they don't have a choice and they just have to face the fear. So yes, we still have a long way to go, but seems like things are making, making progress, right? Let me just say that who knew that Mavericks was going to be such an important wave, right? I mean, A, a big wave in Northern California, B, that it would just the, the ripple on the, the backwash, for lack of a better phrase for this thing, you know, be, beginning with, I mean, it, the roll on is pretty amazing. Where do you think we have equity problems? We're seeing more women surf. We're still working on that outdoor thing. And that's industry-wide. That's universal, right, in terms of, of access and equity. What are you working on right now? Is it just surfing? Is it is it towing? Is it foiling? I mean, the, I feel like the sport is evolving so fast. You know, what what are you sort of, what's got your fire going again? Yeah, so definitely surfing, towing, foiling, all of that, working on my power, got my wattage up on the air bike, 100 watts in one week. So that was- Yes. Yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> and- um, and yeah, just dissecting more like w- what we won was equal prize money. And then so what we started looking at that's been inspiring me is compensation as a whole and really taking a look at like, hey, it's not just the women who are having to work side hustles to support their athleting. It's the men too. And so the next fight is the one for all athletes and taking a look at how we all can just be able to focus on being athletes, right? And there's not just one person at the top who's getting all the endorsements and and all the resources because at a certain point as an athlete, you do need resources in order to excel, right? So I'm just going to take this a little bit of a right turn away from activism, but you mentioned a little bit earlier how much the safety in big wave surfing has evolved and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, especially it's, you know, sort of top of our mind because we just watched the 100 foot wave. And I appreciate, of course, there's always quite a bit of danger involved because nature is unpredictable. But I know also that the safety structures in these, you know, events and just, you know, in people going out to surf big waves outside of events like 100 foot wave and Portugal and other big waves, it just has evolved immensely. So I, I would just love to know like where it was when you first started big wave surfing and where it is now, like what's different? Where it was when I first started was our inflator vests had just came out, the personal flotation devices. And um, people were starting to wear foam, like just like you would behind a boat water skiing. And so those things obviously help break impact. And uh, I think at the core of safety is like being able to self-rescue, obviously. But these great courses have come about and they've been free diving courses and surf safety summits. And we've just different people have developed courses to help us assess risk and to become assets rather than liabilities. And so 
For me, I actually think that whether you're a big wave surfer or not, you should take these courses because they're all about being really just like a first responder. And when you, when you break everything down and you do a practical, and let's say you go out surfing at like Point Reyes in North Beach, right? It's not that far away from civilization, but it's far enough that the response time is actually pretty crazy. And so for anybody listening, Point Reyes is uh, what? how far west of your studio? I don't know, 45 minutes, if even. Yeah, 40. It's not like you're like in some rural village, you know, in another country. But at the same time, there's no cell phone service out there. There's, you know, it would be like the, the closest hospital is an hour away. So it's just going through these scenarios and thinking about them and then, you know, being prepared, hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst. And yeah, just continuing to practice. How do we rescue? How do I rescue a victim on my own in the water? And that's something that I've been doing since I was 16. My first job was I was an ocean lifeguard down in in Orange County. So I have to ask you this question. And by way of background, you may know this about me, that I was attacked by a hippo on the Lower Zambezi River in 1997. And Did you you just call in to just call for help? I just called, yeah, I called for help on my cell phone in 1997. No, I didn't, but... Wait, wait, how... What happened? Yes. I'm not going to tell that story at this moment because what I want to know is the ocean equivalent of a hippo on the river are sharks. And I have this ongoing joke with some people because everyone says, oh, yeah, 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 that's never going to happen. I don't worry about sharks. And and I take the different perspective of like, wait a second, I actually did get attacked by a 4,000-pound animal and it can happen. So legitimately I don't live, attacked. So, like legitimately attacked. It's, so it's I, I don't hyperbole. know, I just wonder, have you had any shark encounters? Do you, Have you just become one with sharks being there? Do you think about it? What's what's your relationship with sharks? And what does sharky mean? And yeah, and Ocean <laughs> Beach is known as sharky. <laughs> Well, I um, I really want to hear the hippo story in more detail. <laughs> oh, yeah, I will. I'll tell you. I always think of it as uh, like when I'm entering in the water, I'm saying thank you for having me in your home because they're dinosaurs and that is their home. And also the I like to go to the statistics. The statistics are kind of like getting struck by lightning. It's, you know, it's really, really rare. And, you know, something we do every single day that we don't even think about is we jump in our cars and we drive and we drive with other people on the road who could kill us at any moment. So um, that's my approach is just putting out that gratitude vibe for, for having me and letting them know I'm not a threat and that I don't have the fat content that they want. and <laughs> Undesirable fatness. Yeah. Well, and it's also just like becoming comfortable with that. I remember when I first moved to Northern California, I would feel eerie, like these eerie moments more often. And now it doesn't happen very often. But when, when there is a moment where something feels not right, I see some birds moving in a weird way, some seals popping up. I pay attention to it and I respect it. And sometimes I'll get out of the water. I just want to say for everyone, again, we've talked about Ocean Beach, but fortunately Ocean Beach is so gnarly and there's so much water moving around that you actually don't think about sharks because you're trying yeah, to Yeah, you're just dealing. You're just busy surf. dealing. You're, you're just busy surfing. Just not get caught on the inside or get out and you're like... Can you tell us about the She Change documentary and does this have something to do with Charlize Theron or Theron? I never know if I pronounce that correctly. Tell us about that. So she, the She Change documentary is the documentary of our fight in Win for Equal Pay. And the Charlize Theron Hollywood film is different. That'll be a Hollywood film with Hollywood actors, and that one will be based off of our New York Times 
cover magazine cover story. Who's playing you? So <laughs> that's a good question. I asked our last meeting, I asked, and they said, our director said, you know, you have your list. Our director's amazing too, Nikki Carroll. She's, uh, she directed the live Mulan and, and Whale Rider and the whole team just is like so awesome. Had me at Whale Rider. Yeah. Becky Johnston. She wrote uh, Seven Years in Tibet and Under the Cherry Moon with Prince, <laughs> um, many other films. But uh, I asked, you know, who's playing us? And they said, you know, you have your list and sometimes it works out that way and sometimes it doesn't. But basically they write the right now they're writing the script and before any of the A-list actors commit to anything, they have to read the script. So so they said maybe Carrie Mulligan would play me. That was what <laughs> Nikki was thinking. Amazing. You just got a thumbs up from Lisa. <laughs> one, Amazing. One of the things that I think is, is notable is that, you know, sometimes I think from the outside, you, you just take this equal, this equality for granted a little bit. And, and you know what I mean? That, of course, women are, not, we're seeing it all the time now. But we're still seeing like the women's national soccer team had to sue, right? We're still seeing in these big organizations that are making a lot more money that there's still this, this non-parity. It feels like you are sort of another brick in the wall around, you know, the case for, you know, this thing. And, and some of it is, if you look over into the mountaineering annals, you know, you see that you know, it was just traditionally men. They were like really dysfunctional men after World War One, starting this these old boys clubs, and then you see someone like Lynn Hill who just pops up and you know and is better than everyone. One of the things that we're starting to see is that the women are surfing technically or paddling technically as well as men. Is that just a function of non-gender, but just exposure? Because in so many other things, we're seeing that women. Once they get the same exposure that men have, the same resources that men have, the the early access to the weight room and and the coaching, there really isn't a difference. Are you feeling that? Yeah, I think that that is, and that's been like for me coming from a non-surf family and just having to figure out everything on my own. It's uh, it's taken me a long time, but now I can share everything I've learned with the up and comers and help them get get to that next level quicker. And that has been a big inspiration for me is that like, hey, if I'm going to be fighting for advocacy, I'm going to, you know, what matters most is me being my best and being like the best possible surfer I can be because that's how I get the respect of the guys. And the women you have to compete against. Yeah. And I do think surfing as a whole, like the our women's physique, I think one day we could be competing against, you know, to have both genders competing against each other. But yeah, we have to have the opportunities first and, and the access to the resources in order to get there. So I'm really curious to learn more about an organization you founded called Better Wave, which is helping, if I'm not mistaken, it's helping surfers invest money so that they can have a, well, well, I think as you describe it, so they can focus on athleting. But tell me a little bit more about that. And before you do, I just want to say that we we actually have a friend who who did a lot of consulting with, he was an NFL athlete and then did a lot of consulting with NFL athletes about how to manage and take care of their money, which I think is so essential because it's possible to, to you know, make a living doing this. But maybe some investment strategy is is not a top of the mind top of mind for a lot of athletes so just tell us a little bit more about what you're doing there so better wave what we're doing is we're we're not just looking at surfers we're looking at all outdoor athletes and like i said we're looking at the full 
the full compensation package. And so we're, we're still collecting all of our data and we want to invest in power and, you know, provide security for these athletes who have been competing and hucking themselves over ledges for the same price today that they have been, you know, 30 years ago. And, you know, just imagining how can we get athletes healthcare and how can we get them 401ks and, you know, to become a successful athlete, you have to be entrepreneurial in the outdoor world. But then at a certain point, it's like, can you continue to be the best athlete and the best entrepreneur? And you two would be able to speak to that better. But, you know, if I'm if I've been surfing the last 20 years and all of a sudden I decide I'm I'm gonna enter into business, like I'm up against all the people who have been doing business for the last 20 years. Yeah, we hear right. that in the Olympics too. Yeah. Same phenomenon sort of this peak earning times, peak experience times, you're a professional athlete. You haven't had a chance to develop any of the other skills. Our friend Gabby Reese says you retire twice. You retire once from your professional sport, and then you retire a second from your job your that you job had to do job. after your professional sport. It's like you, you've worked two careers. You're almost destined to work two careers. You know what it makes me think of is just how important it is to organize. You know, one of the things that I saw in COVID as a gym owner is that there are so many different kinds of gyms and people doing different things, but there's no connection and bigger organization. There wasn't like a California Gym Owners Association. And for the first time, you saw how missing that was in COVID because you saw all these other businesses having major advocacy and opening earlier and you know, just having having up some pull with the state because they were an organized group of businesses. And so I think, you know, in addition to the cool investment information data advice that you can give to all outdoor athletes, I think also just having an organized group, right? Like an organized group can get a healthcare plan. An organized group can get a 401k, right? There's a lot of things they can advocate as a group. I mean, there's so many things that you can do as a group that even a, even the single sport of surfing might not be able to accomplish just in and of itself. Yeah, exactly. And so, and that's, and that's been like, my dad's a chef and my mom is the survivor of a major, major brain injury. And so for me personally, I've always, you know, been craving that advice on how to make good deals. And I'm always asking Kelly questions. And so, yeah, I I would be curious what advice you two would give to young athletes coming up and having deals you know, thrown on the table, if there's anything in hindsight that you would see as as valuable information. Well, I mean, I don't know. I think the only advice I would give is that you have to think of your career like an arc and sort of early in your career, it's helpful to say yes to everything until you reach a point where you like earn the ability to say no, or you earn the ability to say, no, I'm only doing it for more. And, And I do think there's that trajectory. I do think maybe you can't you know, jump onto the scene and say, hey, I expect to be the highest paid athlete today, that if you think of it as a career arc and, you know, maybe say yes to some smaller sponsorships and early relationships and really create relationships, I think ultimately that will lead to money. Our power, our power bar sponsorship, we would be wearing a power bar sticker in a local magazine or newspaper and we'd cut it out and we'd send it to power bar and they send us 50 bucks. Yeah. And we were rich. 
Yeah, I mean, even in thank the, you, you know, power bar. Thank you, but even in the you know the, in the ready state, we have sponsor relationships with organizations, and in every one of those cases, we developed a relationship that had no financial connect- connection long before there was a financial connection. Being of service, um, being yeah, abuse. being of service, doing free stuff, just being stoked. you know, being stoke, sharing the stoke about their stuff, and that has always been helpful to us. Right, we've just shown like, hey, we you know we've created relationships first and then figured out how to monetize them second. There's a lot going on. Yeah. You're in the middle of, it's starting to be early winter. How's this winter shaping up? There's a little uh, climate change thing happening and it's changing a lot. But tell us what your winter is looking like and how it's shaping up. So right now, it kind of feels like the beginning of fall here at Ocean Beach. We just got our offshore winds. Things got a little cooler. But we've got some La Nina patterns, which means the waves aren't huge, but they're offshore and they're great for just five foot, six foot barrels, good performance surfing. And then, you know, it's it's tough to say, but in the long-term forecast right now, we're not seeing much activity, which is unfortunate. But what happened last year was like, it kind of was the same pattern. And then all of a sudden, December hit and it was like, boom, storm after storm after storm after storm. So right now, it's just all about, yeah, focusing on working out and getting more and more fit and more and more ready and staying hopeful. Just... Staying stoked. (laughs) (laughs) Rooted in practice. So tell us where people listening to this can, I mean, you have a lot going on. I mean, there's the She Change documentary. You have your own surfing, your activism. Where can people find you and then continue to sort of track all the cool stuff you're doing? (laughs) I mean, I'm on social media, just like everybody else. Big Wave Bianca, which is my nickname that was given to me and I thought was funny. So we stuck with it. (laughs) They can find me on my website, same website. And I'm here. I'm, I'm local. I'm in San Francisco. And yeah, I'm always down to have a conversation with people doing cool things. Amazing. Dude, thank you so much Bianca, for sharing your stoke with us. It's so fun. You know, we've known you for a few years now and, and uh, gotten to collab with you on things like staying cool at, at Puerto and, and the secret ice bags and, and vests and and watching you untangle yourself after being, you know, ripped through the surf. And uh, it has been total pleasure to hear this arc in sort of in kind of continuity and hearing the official Bianca story, which, you know, as friends, sometimes we don't get to hear. So uh, thank you so much for sharing all that. It's amazing. Thank you. And I don't know, Juliet, if you know, but um, I told Kelly I was going to compete down at Puerto and that I had a problem overheating. And so he said, you know, get this ice beanie and like these different ice packs, put it under your left armpit. And then I got a giant, got a giant sombrero so I was wearing the ice beanie under the sombrero <laughs> with like baggy clothes so nobody knew how cool I was. <laughs> I ended up winning. Yes, ice. I think you should just like develop some kind of product like ice beanie. My friend is developing that. Oh, see, perfect. <laughs> perfect. It's a thing. Ice cold Bianca. I Bianca, thank you so much. Thank it you great for to see you. being here with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop it.